It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio KCAW in Sitka. Today is Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. After a mid-month lull, Sitka's coronavirus cases have begun trending upward again. City officials reported six new coronavirus cases on Tuesday. The patients vary in age, from a young patient between the ages of 10 and 19 to two women in their 60s. Five of them were experiencing symptoms when they received testing over the course of the last week. Three of the cases are classified as secondary, which means they had known contact with a person who tested positive for COVID-19. One of the cases is classified as community spread. Another is associated with travel. All of the new patients are Sitka residents, and at least five of them are isolating locally, according to the city's COVID-19 hub. Sitka has reported 249 coronavirus cases since the pandemic began last spring. As of Tuesday evening, 21 of those cases were considered active. The first shipment of the coronavirus vaccine arrived in Anchorage overnight on Sunday, but state officials aren't saying exactly when doses will be heading out to communities like Sitka and to even more remote locations. Nevertheless, they say it's a turning point in the fight against the pandemic. The state's top medical team took questions from the media during a teleconference on Monday. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. The State Department of Health and Social Services has made its medical staff available every week to answer reporter questions from the very beginning of the pandemic. But this Zoom meeting felt different. Although Alaska's infection rate from coronavirus continues to climb, along with the number of deaths, there was finally something else to be positive about. Dr. Anzink, the state's chief medical officer, was clearly happy about the arrival of the vaccine. I mean, honestly, it's been an emotional day for me. Um, you know, someone described it as this is not, this is V-Day, not in Victory Day, but in Vaccine Day. But this is a big turning moment uh, for Alaska, for our country, and for our world uh, as a whole. You know, I worked my last clinical shift in an emergency department last night prior to my allocation for getting vaccine and seeing the stress and um, fear in my colleagues, seeing long-term care residents getting sick uh, and thinking about being at this cusp of being able to protect some of the most vulnerable with this vaccine uh, is incredibly exciting. Uh, And then being able to move some of those resources uh, to other groups to be able to increase testing capacity, being able to put time and effort into other areas. It's an all the downstream effect. uh, And so I'm incredibly excited to be at this moment. Sink anticipated that the first doses would be administered at Providence Hospital and the Alaska Native Medical Center, both to frontline healthcare workers and to vulnerable populations. Alaska should have 35,000 doses on hand in Anchorage by Wednesday, but public health nurse Tessa Walker-Linderman did not want to share details about the distribution timeline to the rest of the state for security reasons. Our number one priority is getting vaccine out and across the state, and so um, we aren't necessarily saying how many doses are going where and some of these specifics just because we, um, you know, especially for for hospital considerations and not necessarily... um, they're just wanting to keep the integrity of their system in place. And so we aren't, um, you know, necessarily putting out really specific information right now. Linderman did say that the state has a vaccine distribution plan. It's used every year for the distribution of the influenza vaccine. And it was unique to Alaska, since many communities don't receive direct shipment and took into consideration travel by small planes, weather delays, and public health nurses who often have the responsibility for personally carrying vaccine into a village. 
Alaska received the Pfizer vaccine in this initial round. Like the other U.S. vaccine made by Moderna, it requires two doses a few weeks apart to be fully effective. Although both vaccines have been granted emergency authorization by the Food and Drug Administration, the amount of information surrounding their development and clinical trials has been reassuring. Dr. Zink said that surveys within the Alaska healthcare community indicate that providers are on board. You know, a month ago, uh, we didn't have a ton of data, and so there was uh, a lot of vaccine hesitancy uh, for understandable reasons. They wanted to see what the data looks like. There's been a tremendous amount of information that's come out in the last two weeks. Uh, and so many uh, healthcare providers who I think were initially hesitant uh, are starting to say, nope, this is 100% where I'm at. Zink said that watching the data and safety profiles had been impressive and a great relief. One of my biggest fears, she said, was being at this point and having mixed data on the efficacy of the vaccine. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Dr. Elliot Brule will appear this Friday on Raven Radio's morning interview at 8.15 a.m. to discuss vaccine distribution in Sitka and other communities served by the Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium. So far, she says the mitigation strategies are working. While Sitka and communities across the state remain at high risk, Mount Edgecombe has been able to maintain some sense of normalcy. She attributes that to testing and being able to catch cases quickly. More than 300,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus since February. In honor of those lives lost, St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Sitka joined the National Cathedral and churches around the country and rang its bell 300 times on Tuesday afternoon. KCAW's Aaron McKinstry reports. The bell sounded for 15 minutes, one ring for every thousand lives lost. It's a death toll that's hard to comprehend, says Steve Gage, who was one of two church members trading off to tug the bell's heavy rope. It made me think that with every nine rings or eight rings, whatever, that that's the entire population of Sitka. And we rang 300 times. So it's real and it's just kind of hard to take in. It's more than the combined number of Americans killed in World War I, the Korean War, and Vietnam. All of these people had a name and a story and a family. Alaska's death rate remains one of the lowest in the country, according to the CDC, and Sitka has yet to report a death related to COVID-19. But cases continue to rise. Gage and fellow bell ringer Kit Allgood Melema hope this small act will remind Sitkins to remain vigilant by wearing masks, social distancing, and washing their hands. Well, it's one small thing that we can do to honor those people who've passed away, and most of them have died in in just um, really pretty horrible circumstances. Church members rang the bell in September 200 times for 200,000 lives lost, and they'll do it again for 400,000. But both Gage and Allgood Melema say they hope they don't have to. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Erin McKinstry. Coastal Alaska lawmakers say they're unhappy with Governor Dunleavy's proposal to cut more than $2 million from the state ferry system's operating budget. As Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, the proposal will likely prolong the debate over the Alaska Marine Highway System's future during the legislative session that starts next month. Governor Dunleavy proposes about $51 million to run state ferries. It's actually slightly more than he initially proposed last year. 
but it's much less than historically appropriated to the fleet. Lawmakers weren't comfortable with Dunleavy's budget last year. They added about 25% more to their budget to reduce service gaps. But the governor erased most of the extra funding with a stroke of his veto pen. Now he's proposing to run the ferries with $2.4 million less than he ultimately signed off on last year. He told reporters that he's looking for guidance from a task force he appointed that spent most of the year studying the Marine Highway and delivered its final report this fall. We really believe that there needs to be a discussion with the uh, Marine Highway Reshaping Committee, which I hope also takes place, and we'll be talking to the legislature about that, because that committee worked on looking at ways to, again, make the uh, ferry system sustainable for coastal Alaska. He's had that report since the 1st of October, and to my knowledge, there's been no outreach to that reshaping group. Kodiak Republican Representative Louise Stutes sat on the nine-member work group. And there was no suggestions whatsoever in that report that that budget should be cut. Stutes also co-chaired the House Transportation Committee during the last legislative session. She's a staunch defender of public investment on the Alaska Marine Highway and critical of the governor. He says he's listening to Alaskans. Well, he apparently didn't hear the outcry of people in support of the Marine Highway system. Funding for the Marine Highway will likely be contentious in Juneau this year. Rail belt interests have long criticized the expense of running the fleet, while coastal residents argue it's critical infrastructure for communities with little or no road access. Ketchikan Independent Representative Dan Ortez co-chaired the House Finance Committee for the past two years. He says long service gaps are already a problem at current levels, and he calls the governor's ferry budget disappointing. It was uh, an indication to me that the Marine Highway continues not to be a priority for uh, this particular governor, even though it's uh, certainly... An integral part of our transportation system, infrastructure for all coastal Alaskans. This year, the Department of Transportation reported a steep drop in fare revenue as fewer people traveled during the COVID-19 pandemic. DOT has been scheduling one mainliner at a time that leaves little to no slack in the system if a ship breaks down. That's led to months-long service gaps, planned and unplanned, as the fleet struggles to keep communities connected. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. Governor Mike Dunleavy wants the state government to sever its ties with financial institutions that won't finance oil and gas development in the Arctic. Dunleavy announced in a news release on Monday that his administration will introduce a bill during the upcoming legislative session that would require state departments to end any existing relationships with the businesses. The proposed move by Dunleavy follows a string of announcements from major banks and lenders that say they won't invest in oil and gas projects in the Arctic. Those companies include Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and J.P. Morgan Chase. The federal government plans to hold its first-ever oil and gas lease sale in the Arctic Refuge's coastal plain on January 6th. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News. This is listener-sponsored Raven Radio, KCAW, Sitka.